Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Deputy Editor at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each month we're delving a little deeper into some of the conversations being had in our community, learning more about exciting innovations and probing some of the issues we're facing. Later we'll be talking to Shax Ghosh, Chief Executive of Claw Social Leadership and Vicky Browning, Chief Executive of Akivo, about leadership and what the barriers are for leadership development in the sector. And Third Sector reporter Liam Kay will be chatting to the British Stammering Association about its latest campaign to change perceptions of stammering. But first, I have a slightly random question for you. Hit me. Would you ever let someone else choose a tattoo for you? Absolutely not. No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because the only people I can think of who would try to choose a tattoo for me would be either my partner or my family. And I just I, I could just see them being really terrible about it. Frankly, what about you? Hmm. Probably not. Yeah, there's not many people that I would I would trust that way. And I certainly don't think I would trust my colleagues. I'm really, really frightened of needles. So it's never... <laughs> it, really, no, I have a real... Like, getting injections is a, is a nightmare. So the idea of just lying down and letting someone jab away at me um, for a semi-permanent thing. <laughs> no, I don't mind talking about them, but just the idea of actually getting a tattoo is a little, uh, is a little scary for me. But so Rebecca, if you had to get a tattoo of something, what would you get a tattoo of? Well, I am toying with getting a tattoo, actually. I kept saying, I'll, I, I had this idea in my early 20s and was like, that's probably a bad idea. And I was like, okay, I'll get one when I'm 30. Yeah. And I turned 30 in April. So <gasps> you've got to do the, the it. The clock now. is ticking. Those the clock the is ticking. Okay. So I do want to get the, the horse, you know, the white horse in Uffington that's yes. like in Gaven Hill. I want to get that on my foot. Oh. Because my foot is nice and out of the way. So I can say, I've got a tattoo, but it's not exactly daring, is it? Yeah. Out the way. So um, the reason for me bringing up tattoos um, is to do with our second interview. A few years ago, our guest offered his team a challenge. He promised that if they could raise £50,000 towards a particular fundraising campaign, he would get a tattoo of the charity's logo on a body part of the team's choice. Yeah, I mean, what you said about letting your colleagues choose... Yeah. A tattoo, again, it sounds incredibly dangerous. Yeah. I love the team at Third Sector, but... Um, so, yeah, they raised £60,000. Oh, and, no. um, yeah, let's just say he's a man who's utterly prepared to put his butt on the line for fundraising. I would like to applaud him for his incredible commitment. Yeah. Yeah, hats off. Anyway, he's retiring this year, and I went on to speak to him, and we chatted about a whole range of things, why he's leaving, the future of fundraising, his career, but, yeah, I couldn't resist asking him about the tattoo. I um, mean... I can't wait to hear this. So later on, I'll be speaking to Ed Aspel about his time at Cancer Research UK, his thoughts on the future of fundraising and uh, matters a little closer to home. But first, the Claw Social Leadership Report, which came out last month, suggested that there was confusion about the nature and effectiveness of leadership and leadership development in the charity sector. So what is it that we're not understanding? We spoke to Shax Ghosh, Chief Executive of Claw Social Leadership, and Vicky Browning, Chief Executive of Charity Leaders Body, Akivo, who contributed to the report. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us today, Shax and Vicky. It's brilliant to have you both in the studio to talk about leadership. Thanks for inviting us. So, first of all, what do we mean when we talk about leadership and how is it different to management? For me, the biggest difference is that leadership is about why we do what we do and management is about how we do what we do. So I think if you, if you want to sort of do the contrast between the two, leadership is about inspiration, management is about implementation, uh, leadership is about tomorrow, management is about today. It's that sort of difference, I think, the, the vision and the, and the foresight uh, as opposed to the cracking on and doing. Can you be a good leader if you're not a good manager? 
I think you can if you have the self-awareness to know that you're not a good manager because I think <laughs> yeah. you, you, you need both it's not that if you're a good leader you don't need good management you absolutely do because you can have the best vision in the world but if nothing actually gets done I think you uh, need you're not to know really what, what, what management skills are so I always say to my team don't expect me to be a good manager mm. micromanagement is not my style what I want is to set the intention set the vision yeah work with you on strategy, and then I want you to be free to deliver in the way that you think is the right thing. So it's exactly as Vicky was saying, it's it's the why, not the how. Mm. So if you think about management as being much more about the how, mm. leadership is about the vision, mm. the why. You know, managers, you, you, you're there, you, you sort of tell people what to do. I think as leaders, we should be coaching them to, to do things in the best way they possibly can to make them be as good as they can be rather than being directive. It's much more yeah, about yeah, the kind yeah. of coaching thing. Exactly. And can I return to your question about what is leadership? Mm. Because we're a leadership provider, we spend a lot of time on this question. And for me, leadership is actually about a set of skills and behaviours. And mm. it's quite simple. And I feel strongly about making that point because people can mystify leadership into something that's you know a bit scary a bit elite and actually it's just a set of skills and behaviors and the more of those skills and behaviors you have the more situations you'll be able to kind of operate in be comfortable in be successful in and the other thing we say about in answer to this issue about what is leadership is that it actually has to start with self that self-awareness. Mm. So we have a little mantra which goes, know yourself, be yourself, look after yourself. That is absolutely at the very core of leadership. Mm. Back to your point, Vicky, about you don't have to be a good manager, but you have to know you're not yeah. a good manager yeah. and you have, to, you have to own that. And then it's about relationships with others, influencing others and working within a context. So the skills and behaviours you might need in the military, for example more about command and control, very different to what we would expect to see in the voluntary sector. And of course, you know, Claw Social Leadership recently put out quite an extensive report about the nature of leadership in the third sector. Shaq, um, it seems the most obvious question to ask you first, was there anything that came out of that research that you found particularly surprising? Yeah, a wonderful new report called uh, Talking Leadership. And what we did was we interviewed... 50 influencers and senior leaders, mostly in the social sector. I did some of those interviews myself and they were some of the best conversations that I have ever mm. had. So lots of juicy stuff in the report, lots of nice stories, lots of rich narrative about how people lead. The really interesting finding was a message of abundance. Now, at a time when... Everybody's talking about constrained resources and austerity and the fact that the charity sector has no resources for training and development and skills and leadership development and all of that. Actually, the message that came through was there is an abundance of really great leadership right. and leadership development opportunities in our sector. The interesting thing was all the people we spoke to said, yes, I'm really busy, but absolutely, if called upon, I would make time to provide mentoring, coaching, 
work shadow experience, share my own story of leadership, my own experiences of leadership. So I think we're, where we got to in that conversation is that I think we're ready for something really interesting, which is that if you imagine that we have a million leaders in our sector and every one of them is able to make an hour a month, an hour a week to put into a pot for leadership development for the next generation of leaders, you actually have an abundance of leadership development. It's just how do you broker that? How do you make sure that the people that have it to give are able to reach the people who really, really need it? And I think that's a very exciting project that potentially the sector needs to work on mm, together. Mm. We have, I mean, Akiva, we, we run a mentoring scheme and, and I completely hear all that. The generosity of our members is extraordinary. People just give them give their time, give their expertise and give up their knowledge. I mean, last year we did 70 matches. We matched 70 either chief executives or aspiring chief execs with counterparts in the scheme. I think the the important thing, though, is to, is to, to recognise that it does actually take time. You have to invest time in your own Mm -hmm. development as a leader so while some of these interventions are not necessarily expensive cost you know uh, cash wise you do actually have to put the effort into to doing it and and we find when the mentoring relationship works it's an absolutely brilliant two-way thing the the mentor gets as much out of it as the mentee does but often if it doesn't work ironically it's often the mentee that finds they don't have the time to be mentored and actually so we're really insistent that people before they sign up to the program really understand that they have to invest their own time and their own thinking in doing this because it's not it's not sort of something that you can just dip into I think you have to you have to commit to it yeah yeah and I don't think it's just mentoring though because so my uh, absolutely favorite example Mm -hmm. and it's not an example from our sector which makes me a bit sad is transport for London and their mantra is 30,000 staff 30,000 leaders and what they do is they set the expectation that everybody will be mentored and will mentor but they also have reading clubs They have expert hour sessions where expert leaders will talk about something that they're passionate about and everybody can attend. And since I went and looked at their model of doing what they call leader-led learning, there's very little resource required to run Mm -hmm. this system because a lot of it is done online. Ever since I went in and had my study day there, I look at people, you know, on the platform, I look at the train managers, I look at the train drivers, and actually you do see something incredible, which is a quality of self-possession and and confidence, because everybody in the organisation has this expectation placed on them that they are a leader. I think it's about leadership development for sure, all kinds of different things which can be done at low cost. But I think it's also about having an expectation placed on you that you're a leader. And in Talking Leadership, the report we just published, a lot of people talked about that moment when they realised they were a leader. And they went from being an accidental leader to being somebody who identified as a leader, took their responsibilities seriously 
And one of those responsibilities was a responsibility to themselves. Mm. That if I'm a leader, it's my responsibility to keep up to date with stuff, to make sure that I'm I'm rested, I'm self-aware, that I invest in myself. One of the things that report brought up was that one of the barriers around leadership was confusion, that the sector is a bit confused about what leadership might look like and what can be done to clear up that confusion. So first of all, it's about understanding why there's confusion. And I think there are, there are a number of things. One is the word leadership. Your question, what's the difference between leadership and management? Mm-hmm. Do I really understand that? So clarifying what leadership is. The other thing is the value of leadership and the value of leadership development. So we, in, in a different piece of research, we published a report last year which showed that there is a correlation between leadership and productivity and performance. If you're an organization that invests in leadership development, then your productivity and your performance can go up by up to 23%. Showcasing really good leadership, making the case for it, I think is really important because people don't people don't know that it will change things. It'll make them more resilient. They don't necessarily make the association that investing in their own leadership development will help their beneficiaries. And of course, we're a sector that cares passionately about our beneficiaries. Mm. So we think we need to put all our money onto the front line. But actually, it is that, you know, the theory of change, which goes invest in yourself, invest in your people, your organisation, and then your beneficiaries will benefit. And does this issue around confusion sort of chime with your experiences, Becky? It it does, because I think one of the challenges is that people learn in different ways. People like to, some people like, you know, classroom learning. Some people like action learning sets. Some people like just having a chat over a coffee. Uh, some people like job shadowing. So there's lots of different ways of, of learning. And it's not always easy to see what's being offered, whether it's tailored to what what would suit you. But I think uh, sort of behind that as well is this, the kind of one of the myths about leadership, which is that leaders are Born. You know, you're either a leader or you're not. You know, that's just nonsense. Leadership is is a set of skills. Leadership can be learnt, and leadership looks very different to in, in different circumstances. I think so. Again, that you know, the leader is not the hero, the uh, usually bloke uh, standing <laughs> at the front and sort of you know shouting charge. You know, th- there are lots of different types of leadership, and I think some of the interesting work that's come out of the Julia Unwin report around power and dispersing power. So, how do we as leaders think about our positions of power and how we distribute that to others the idea of kind of transparency accountability connectivity all of that that Julie put in her report I think is these are really interesting challenges for us as leaders to think about and and all that kind of feeds into where do we go in terms of finding suppliers so I think I think the idea of you know better signposting again we we, we do quite a lot of work uh, with members of of really understanding them as individuals and then recommending things that may that may suit them uh, that, that particular point in their career or or in their development, but I think there's a lot of stuff um, mm. and there's a lot of fragmentation. Uh, yeah, fragmentation, and that's that. You know, but there is a lot of people want different things, so yeah. uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing. But I think there's something about trying to kind of bring it all together a bit to be a bit more coherent, so so you get over that. And are there challenges? I mean, you've just been talking about some really interesting things there, and, and also I thought it was very interesting, Shax, what you said about this genuine kind of care and concern for beneficiaries, which charities go through, which you might not necessarily see in the private sector 
or the public sector. Um, do you think that some of these challenges are kind of specific to the third sector and the voluntary sector? I think within the voluntary sector, one of the, I mean, there's there are unique challenges. I mean, leadership is leadership across all sectors in, in one sense, but I do think the voluntary sector has specific challenges around things like our stakeholder base. So we just have so many different people that we're accountable to, whether that's our the, the trustees who are obviously volunteers, our staff, our beneficiaries, volunteers, our donors, the public, you know, this this expectation somehow that uh, charity leaders should be held to higher standards than other leaders. You know, I, I, I understand that, but it's not it's not always easy. And I, then I think there's there's other things like the, the fact that we're often dealing with huge intractable issues with limited resource so you know there are sort of challenges that I think that are specific to our sector but the people I meet in my work you know in Shaq's I was you know I love the way you said that some of the interviews you have are the best conversations you've had you know there are some unbelievable leaders in our sector there are some people who are so inspiring and so committed and so interesting and yeah. interested in their development and the development of leadership more generally that I think it's really I think it's really exciting so here's a statistic which I think about a lot which is the workforce the paid workforce in the voluntary sector is 800,000 plus Mm. minus. The number of volunteers who volunteer regularly and formally is 15 million. And then there's a whole load more that volunteer informally. Um, And obviously they're a bit more difficult to track. So if you think about leadership as a way of influencing and inspiring others... That is just a huge difference with other sectors. Because you're not being rewarded in that classic way. And so you've got to find other ways to motivate people. Exactly. Exactly. And the way to do it, I would argue, is with leadership, not with management. Because you don't have, you know, the structured things that you can, uh, as a technocrat, learn and deploy which is about pay and conditions and reward systems and, and all of that. The best way to inspire our 15 million volunteers is by being great role models and great leaders ourselves. We've touched on it a little bit, but are there sort of low cost ways to develop leadership in the sector? Yes, absolutely. And I think it goes back to the heart of what Talking Leadership was saying about abundance. If there is indeed an abundance of talent and opportunity that people will make available time then finding a way of collecting that together. So um, one of my trustees, who's a strategy professor, he talks about Airbnb, for example, as being part of the shared economy where everybody had a spare bedroom and an hour to change sheets. Having a spare bedroom and an hour to change sheets isn't enough to run Mm. a hotel. But a million spare bedrooms and a million hours to change sheets on a platform, all of a sudden is an abundance of accommodation, which is very kind of disruptive for the hotel industry. If we can think of a really smart way of doing that, and this is kind of the innovation, I think, that we need to look for, which is how do you create a platform with a million opportunities for leadership development for the next generation of leaders that are coming through to be inspired by these incredible, generous leaders that we already have in our sector? then nobody needs to go and do an expensive MBA or an expensive leadership program because it's available there at a minimal cost at the time when you need it for the right part, for the right training that you need on your leadership journey. 
Vicky, any final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with that. I, I, do, I would just want to say as well that it is worth spending some money sometimes. I mean, you know, we, we, we do have this thing in the sector that we try to get everything for free. And sometimes... It, you know, actually investing in a, a really good course, whether it's a, a claw course or a you know leadership trust or whatever it might be, is money well spent. So I don't think we should. You know, there are low cost ways of doing this. There are very generous leaders who are able to to give their time and give their wisdom and experience. But also, it's fine to to invest. And and I think that's a message for trustees as well. You know, do invest in your leaders because if you had a building, it's an asset. You would look after it. Uh, You have leaders and they're your biggest assets. So invest in them, look after them. Sometimes low cost, but sometimes, you know, it's fine to spend a bit of money on it. Shax, Vicky, thank you so much. Great pleasure. Now, Ed Aspel has been Director of Fundraising at Cancer Research UK, the biggest fundraising charity in the UK since 2015. He recently announced his retirement and I went along to the Cancer Research UK offices to look back over his time at the charity. I started by asking him about the charity's recently published annual accounts and reports. Picking up on the year-end stuff, one thing I noticed from the report was quite interesting that your fundraising income is up, but yep. donations are down. And actually, what's what's covering that is legacies and events, which I just thought was really interesting because that seems to be a trend that we're spotting in, in the wider sector. And I mean, for you guys, what's behind that, do you think? So, so I think the first thing to say is, because we've got a broad portfolio, ending up getting 2% growth. I think it's something we are, given the tough conditions, we're really pleased with. And and that broad portfolio means it's, you know, so we've got it from legacies. We've had really good on Stand Up to Cancer. Race for Life um, has also done well. But we've also had a record here from trading as well. And our brand is really, really strong. But there's no doubt that the consumer confidence is low. Mm-hmm. It has been since the Brexit vote. And when people are looking to cut back or be careful about their money, and charity is one place that they will do that, particularly on donations, straight on, on donations. So I think that's that's part of it. I think there's changing attitudes as well. And so there is the propensity to give to charities is reducing. It's reducing across all ages. I also think for younger people, how they want to put something back is changing quite considerably and I think they want it's about experience and the activities that they do not just about donation and then I think the other bit is in the sector it has just proven really difficult to innovate Hmm. and come up with new and exciting on a big scale so the traditional give do buy pledge is still fundamentally how charities are structured and major kind of transformational innovation isn't something that uh, we've seen and so the donation area is very very mature but I think it's changing I think it's beginning to change quite dramatically and for me I think the biggest change that we're seeing the biggest disruption is around social media platforms and giving and so Facebook have already started and we we are doing extremely well through Facebook we started November we've already had by the year in two million in terms of donations but that's what it's about this is about peer-to-peer giving rather than just straight to the charity. And I think, you know, we've got Instagram's launching this month. But what you're seeing is peer-to-peer giving, I think, is just going to extend. We're going to see it on Twitter. We're going to see it, I think, we'll probably see it through LinkedIn. But more than that, it's the social platforms about gaming is really growing as well. And so if you can fill the O2 with people watching other people gaming, (laughs) and those people are saying, if you know, um, they are almost like celebrities, and it is, they will have charities that they get people to support. 
that then becomes a form of event. You're also getting the influencers who will be having kind of charities that they're buying. And so the model that would, we would have had in the past about events, about sponsorship, about giving, is actually going to occur within those platforms. Mm. Almost every type of way in which we raise money at the moment, including you know, through eBay, it's going to happen in terms of uh, stock and, um, and retail. I think we're seeing a fundamental shift in the way in which people are giving through social and digital. That is going to grow dramatically. There's opportunities, but there's challenges. So I think the challenges is the old days where charities will be able to manage the supporter journey and want to kind of manage that very, very carefully. You will be able to do that. We'll have direct relationships with supporters. But where it's peer-to-peer and it's within platforms, that is going to be one where we will have less control and we may not get all of the data. And that may be okay because that's how people are giving and how they want to give. But the fundamental bit that will be important underneath all of that is your brand. So if we, we see a shift towards social platforms in giving, brand becomes all important because brand awareness, what you stand for, and also the impact that you deliver, if that's the reputation that goes along with the brand, that is what will guide people when they're doing peer-to-peer fundraising. This is the charity I want to support, and I want you to donate to me to support that charity, so the birthday giving. Brand will be everything. Do you think the fundraising sector needs to change? I'm hearing a lot of um, sort of yeah. fundraisers, public fundraisers saying, we've really got to overhaul the way we're looking at the way we're doing it. Do you agree that's the case, or is it tweaking? To get big growth, there's going to have to be substantial changes, because fundraising sector, I mean, we're a mature economy. We're not going to have an economy which is growing at 6 7% or a middle class that's growing very rapidly, like you might see in, in India or in China. And so I think the days of huge jumps in the overall market in the UK are not going to happen. And so you need to think, think of different ways of motivating people, different ways of getting them to support. So I think that's about, it is about how can you monetize your assets. I think it will be about, can we really look to, about peer-to-peer giving and what are going to be the major disruptors that come through? And, and I guess from my own perspective, if I'd say there's kind of one... One regret that I have here is that I didn't come up with, the team didn't come up with what is the transformational innovation that's different from Give, Do, Buy, Pledge. I think it's happening, as I said, through these social platforms. We came up with Out of Town, we came up with our own fundraising platform, we're doing Stand Up to Cancer. We've done a lot of innovation, but nothing that was a transformational new way of raising funds. And I think that's the big challenge. And then I guess kind of to move on to your time at the organisation, because obviously um, you're going to be heading out the door soon. Um, How would you say fundraising has changed both here and kind of in the wider sector while you've um, sort of been involved with it and while you've been here? So the, the fundamental changes here have been around, first around regulation and scrutiny. And that has increased dramatically. There's also been a change in public attitudes towards charities. It came about through a reduction trust, although that's improved a bit recently. But it really is quite okay to have a, to say, I don't give to charities. It's okay to say, I don't trust charities. It, it, the public can do that, and that's a, that's a significant change. And then the other big change has been this growth in uh, digital ways of fundraising and other players who have come into the market. But other bits that I don't think have changed, or rather it has, that has stimulated a change, which I think is good, 
which had always been the case, which is that charities are here to serve their supporters. And so some of those changes came about because I think some of the marketing techniques that charities had adopted were unpopular, were seen to be annoying and winding people up, and I'm not sure was actually putting the supporter first. And so what I think we're at the position we're in now, in terms of our database, we have a much, much smaller contactable database, but it's really high quality. The relationships that we have with our supporters are much stronger than they used to be. Our trust scores have gone up. And for me, that has been recalibrating how we think about our supporters and why we're here. And, and if you like, the move to opt-in really was about a symbolic change to say, if we're moving to opt-in, we need to give our supporters a reason to opt-in, as opposed to the fact that we've just got them on our database. And that stimulated very, very different ways of thinking about our supporters. And I think that's the real change that we've seen here. I, I think the other one, though, is, as well within the charity, is I think we've moved to, as a result, a much more rounded view of our supporter too. We involve patients, people with cancer, supporters, a lot more in developing the work that we do. And not just from the fundraising side, but from the science and from our policy work as well. And what that says, I think we, we see now our supporters, as they get behind us in any way that they want to, they can give us their money or their time, but they can give us their voice. We also get supporters who give us their, their bodies too when they're going through clinical trials. But people can also beat cancer by changing their lifestyle habits. And I think we now see our supporters much more in that way. And so there's much stronger collaboration across the organisation than there was before. I think that's a really positive change that we've seen as well. But there's bits I don't think have changed, which is, I suppose, partly why I was attracted to come here in the first place, is Cancer Research UK, it really, the team here are brilliant. It's really professional. I mean, it really is. You come into an organisation with real ambition, with very high skills, that um, really look to do things well and differently. I think it's very kind as well. I think the values here are really nice. So it's good fun working here. That, I don't think, has changed. I think it's what makes the place really appealing. I mean, there's, there's been some, some highlights too. I mean, doing um, the boxing was quite something. So oh, I did yeah. that one year. And, I mean, that was tough. It was exhilarating, but, but tough. But I also, the bit, uh, when we did um, Stand Up to Cancer, I always do a, a challenge for the team. So if yeah. we hit a certain target, I'll do some sort of forfeit, which is where the tattoo yes. came from. Well, so. I, I've been, it's been made very clear to me that if I don't ask you what's going to happen to the tattoo, I'm not welcome right. back in the office. So, so um, the tattoo is staying exactly <laughs> where it is. Um, and I'm not showing it to anybody either. <laughs> it I wasn't asking, so, don't worry. No, We're good. No, so you'll find... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but yeah, I mean that was one where I thought, okay, if if I'm serious about setting guys a target, me something, let's get this done. But it caught people's imagination here and was <laughs> quite a bit of fun. And they did do. There was a wind up where about the end of the the, the fundraising week, it was a Thursday, and we were at a fundraising do, and I had to announce the total, which somebody said, which na- which actually means there, Fred, you need to get your tattoo done. And they got some guy come up on stage with a little bag and a chair and said, where do you want it? And I fell for it. It was this guy from the kitchen of the pub. I fell for it. Um, can you come back tomorrow? It's a bit difficult, you know. So, but, but anyway. Yes, that was, that was, that was fun. That was, that was a lot of fun, actually. I'll be here for stand-up this year. And so 
they've just put out um, an email to everybody about what should be my forfeit this year. So I'll find out. I, I suppose I probably have a veto on it, but it's not going to be another tattoo. That's the one <laughs> we'll do. The one we'll do. The British Stammering Association has launched a new campaign called Stammer, with the help of ZAG and BBH, to reposition stammering as a serious issue and smash the misconceptions of the condition. The campaign follows concerns that many people underplay how damaging the condition is, with a YouGov poll showing that one in four members of the public would be comfortable to hear jokes about stammering. Third Sector senior reporter Liam Kay met with Bethany Kelly, a trustee at the BSA, and the charity's chief executive, Jane Powell, to discuss the campaign. Bethany, Jane, thank you for joining me. What sparked the latest campaign and what does it entail? I think two drivers. The first was that uh, we did some polling with YouGov and that showed that just 2% of the population knew who we were. And even when you kind of look down to the percentage of people who stammered out of those, it again was a tiny... People didn't know who we were, so if you stammered, then where do you go and where do you look for? So we needed to reach our audience. But also we looked at what did people... What were public perceptions around stammering? And what came across really clearly is that the public were largely ignorant about stammering. And and that also, I think something like 27% of the population felt comfortable making jokes around stammering. And I think that we face a kind of a major hurdle in terms of getting stammering taken seriously. Because at the Mm. moment it's not. It's kind of still seen as something you can joke about in the way that you really wouldn't any longer find watching a blind man fall down a hole, funny. Yeah. You know, those times are past. That's back in the 70s and 80s. But stammering, uh, when I got the job at the BSA, a communications officer texted me and went, congratulations. Yeah. And thought that was funny. When I was looking at the job, someone made a joke about it. And I think that we need to stop that. Mm. Um, Stammering is a really serious issue. If you stammer, um, that affects your daily minute-by-minute life. And it's something that isn't particularly funny. It's about as funny as being deaf. And so what we needed to do was to, to launch a campaign to make sure that people were aware of who we were, to get this issue taken seriously, um, and to start to educate the public and getting the public to think about what does it mean to stammer. And in, in terms of the sort of campaign itself, sort of, you know, how, how did that develop from there? And sort of, you know, what were some of the key aspects of the campaign that you wanted to bring in? We briefed an agency to work with us on developing uh, kind of a brand and a campaign. Some of the things that they needed to tackle were the fact that every person who stammers, stammers differently. And that what we didn't want to do was portray this as some medical kind of condition. That we needed to make people feel comfortable with having a stammer. And we needed to do so in a way which you know, didn't say, you know, urinary tract infection. It needed to be a feel-good campaign, but it needed to allow and reflect the fact that we were a membership campaign. And I think the campaign that they've and the brand that they've developed is really clever. I think it reaches and talks about and, and indicates stammering, but also gives us this platform within the I Stammer letters to enable different voices to be heard and to be shown. And different perspectives of the experience of stammering because not only does the condition fluctuate in the individual, so some days I'm really fluent and some days I can barely get words out, 
but also you can have a covert stammerer, so someone who has a stammer but you actually can't yeah. hear it, but they've got all that physical experience and the reality of swapping out words as they're speaking, as the sentences are forming in their mind, right the way through to someone who has an overt stammer that's really audible and maybe has some very visible physical attributes to it as well. But the thing that I find really exciting about the campaign is that it engenders a sense of pride, mm. not only in the people who stammer, but their friends, their families... A sign that um, we were on to something really quite special was when a colleague at work who doesn't stammer, has never been involved with the British Stammering Association, saw the stickers, saw the, the postcards and the badges and said, I want some. I want to be able to put that imagery, that branding on my things. I want to have a conversation about this. So it's attractive. It's very different. It you know features real people who stammer, not the kind of medicalized. Oh, poor you! You can't get your words out. You're a bit simple. You just need to relax, take a breath, you know, calm down, stop being so anxious. It's invigorating and um, something that it doesn't matter whether you stammer or, or or not. You'd want to be associated with. What are your aims going forward? You know, what would success look like to you? Sort of, you know, months down the line. The campaign is part of a five-year plan, so success, we're kind of looking to, you know, success being ultimately people feeling completely comfortable and not ashamed of having a stammer, that they can feel able to get any job and that the public doesn't say, please take a breath, don't worry, don't be nervous, it's okay, and the public understands what it means to stammer. So zooming back, we did kind of coming back to the YouGov polling we looked at what awareness was, what people thought caused stammering. So year on year, we'll be tracking to see the, the change in awareness of the organisation and in branding awareness and in awareness of the fact that it's primarily a kind of developmental condition. It's often hereditary, mainly affects men. And actually taking a breath doesn't stop you stammer, weirdly. And that it's not about nervousness. So if we can see those kinds of changes, that would be great. The other things that we're obviously tracking are membership, our reach on social media. Though we'll be looking at donations and income. We're going to be tracking uh, these packs and seeing how well they sell. So we've got quite a, a large number of, of metrics there. But there's also the conversations around what it is to be fluent. So within the stammering community, someone who doesn't stammer is seen as fluent. And having a stammer shouldn't be a barrier to any job, any career, any situation. Speaking to your doctor, ringing for information on a helpline, communicating just because you have a stammer doesn't mean you can't be an impactful and really engaging speaker. And that's what I think is really missing around the conversation. So I think in, in reflecting back that on, and to looking at the public, so whether it's a taxi driver or whether it's somebody uh, kind of when you pick up a phone that's ringing and you hear a long silence and you slam it down it's kind of is this person does this person stammer it's about the employees kind of going we need good communication skills um, and communication skills isn't actually the ability to speak really fast or fluently good communication skills means so much more than that yeah. and so anyone that stammers can have really fantastic communication skills our communications officer stammers We've got a lot of things that we need to change and we've got metrics in place and ways of tracking that, those changes. Are there any lessons that you've taken from the campaign? Start designing your merchandise earlier, I think. 
<laughs> get it ready to go. We packed the the redesign of the website and looking at the user journey and bringing in a CRM system all in the you know first six months of the year to get this ready for this campaign. So it has been a really intensive period um, and trying to get the, everything ready for the campaign has been a, a huge job for a very young new team. I think if there were any takeaways that other organisations would want to to kind of learn from the experiences, the power of positive. So having having a really positive campaign versus trying to educate around the negative and kind of discomfort around stammering, but doing it in a positive confidence building way has Mm -hmm. been really really impactful making sure that you can see real people versus stock photos so having being a membership organization being able to show the diversity of people who are absolutely you know fantastic and creative and powerful and positive that's that's been really 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 exciting but also your audience doesn't need just to be people who stammer yeah. And that's the power of the Stammer campaign that, as I say, anyone who has an interest in communication or just having a meaningful conversation with somebody in an empathic and modern way should be aware of what stammering is and how they can support someone. And the last thing I'd like to end with is that this is kind of part of a careful plan. And and so, you know, this was planned as soon as I took the job and it was part of you know what I wanted to do when I took the job is that we needed to change the way we looked. We needed to make sure that people could access help. We've kind of changed the whole helpline. We've changed the way we deliver services. The campaign is just Fully the integrated plan, yeah. Jane Bettany, thank you very much. Thank you. We'll be back with another episode next month. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Thank you again to Shax Ghosh, Vicky Browning, Ed Aspel, Bethany Kelly and Jane Powell for joining us. To the producer, Anushka Tate for Rethink Audio and to you for listening. 